Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, let us enter into worship. Arise, if you would. You know the, uh, you know the story in the Gospels of um, Martha and Mary. Jesus goes to Martha and Mary's house, and there's a lot of people there, and Martha's real busy getting uh, dinner preparations put together for all the guests and working her tail off. Meanwhile, her sister Mary is just sitting there listening to Jesus, just sitting at Jesus' feet. And, of course, Martha says to Jesus, would you please get my sister? This is classic family dynamics where they don't talk to each other, and there's a third person. It's called triangling. So they triangle in Jesus. Would you please get my sister to help me prepare dinner? And then Jesus says those famous words, Martha, Martha, like Martha, Martha, Martha. You know, you're busy at so many things, and there's really only one thing necessary. And Mary's chosen the better part. That is to sit at Jesus' feet. It's not that Martha was wrong. It's just in that moment, the thing to do is to sit at Jesus' feet. And that's what we've come to do this morning. We've come to learn from the Lord. But we've come here also to worship and do the one necessary thing. For about 1,500 years, people have translated those words, which are hard to translate. The one necessary thing, one thing necessary, only one thing. The Latin is unum est necessarium. Unum est necessarium. And, you know, if you use your kind of fake Latin translation, which we can all do, you know, e pluribus unum, you kind of figure it out. It means like one thing necessary. Unum est necessarium. Necessary one thing. And you're going to say that here in just a moment as we pray, which is what we're going to do right now. One thing I've asked the Lord Who is it that you seek? You seek him with all your heart. You seek him with all your soul. You seek him with all your mind. You seek him with all your strength. Then let us declare our faith, everyone. To whom shall we go? We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. Lord, we have nowhere else to be. Est necessarium. We have chosen the better part. Amen. Let's worship. Father, through these songs, you've ministered to our hearts. I pray you've ministered to hearts who have been separated from you and have received assurance they can come home to you. Pray now through this examination of the world you have created, you could also minister to minds who feel they have gotten far from you and aren't sure if they can come back. Pray you'd minister to us heart, mind, body this morning. In the name of Christ, our King, we pray. Amen. We'll have a seat, everyone, and good morning. And strap yourselves in. So I assume you're the ones at first service, as you passed, didn't say, run! <laughs> so good morning. Um, it, it's going to surprise some of you to learn, not all, but it's going to surprise some of you to learn this morning that even pastors doubt the existence of God sometimes. 
my own doubting of the existence of God usually happens in late winter as I am driving down Colburn Road on the way here to do my work during the week. And on that, on those wintry mornings, sometimes it will just hit me. Why am I doing this? Why am I going here? I think of everyone in the world in that moment who's doing something that has nothing to do with God. I think of everyone in the world in that same moment who isn't giving Jesus Christ a second thought. And I wonder what I'm coming here to do and what all of you um, are out there doing. Is it all rooted in reality? And then I look out the window and I see grass. I see all the different kinds of grass, even, even poking up through the snow in the winter. And I ask myself, well, if there's no God, then how did all this grass get here? Now, I have a bachelor's degree in biology. That does not make me a scientist. That means I had five years of training toward being one that, you know, and then it didn't happen. But in biology, I learned one answer for how all that grass came to be outside that car window. And it kind of went like this, that there used to be moss, moss growing beside the water because back then moss had to grow beside the water because it would dry up anywhere else. But there was a mutation. And some of the moss got a thicker cell wall so that it could grow farther from the water. And that helped the moss survive better. After a long time, most of the moss was growing farther and farther away from the water. The population was evolving Eventually, it changed enough and accumulated so many changes that it became something we couldn't really call moss anymore. And after a long time, it became this very advanced plant we take for granted called grass. That's the answer I learned in biology class about how that grass got to be there. And I'm driving down Colburn Road and I'm having my doubts. And I remember that this happens to animals too. They said in biology class, you know, here's a bird skeleton. If you ever have seen one of those. But there was a time when we find bones that indicate birds may have looked like this. And before that, this. I learned that answer at Avila University. The only university at that time in the state of Missouri that required a five-hour credit course in evolutionary mechanics before you could get a biology major. So most universities' evolution just mixed in a little to every class. Avila was the only one in the state of Missouri you had to take a whole class about nothing but how evolution works to get your degree. It's called Biology 310. And yet, I want to tell you this morning how on those mornings when I'm doubting God and I'm driving down Colburn Road and I'm looking out the window, I remember those things I learned in evolution, in biology 310. And it's those very things that drive me back to God every time. I don't want to tell you this because you should care whether I have faith or not or where it comes from. But I I want to tell you this because I think there are some of you who may be haunted this morning uh, by the thought that there might be some science out there that makes you look stupid. Like your belief in God is an utterly unscientific fairy tale. And I want to show you this morning that that is just not the case. I also think there may be some of you who have an adversarial view of science and scientists, and that whatever a scientist says must be anti-God and is therefore not to be trusted. And I'd like you to see that that's not necessarily so either. 
So let me share with you some things that I learned during those years of biological study that now make it very hard for me to doubt the existence of God. So everything we've talked about this morning, um, already the moss and their cell walls, the birds and their skeletons, it all starts with DNA. So as several of you came in this morning, um, I handed you some poster signs. So everybody I handed a poster sign to, if you would come and be in the front row. But some of you, your poster sign is, has a square on it and a number on the back. If you have a number on the back, I'd like you to come line up behind me in number order. Because you, you don't know it yet, but you're DNA. So <laughs> DNA is a marvelous code. It's a code that only has, and the rest of you can have a seat, thank you. It's a code that only has four letters, A, G, T, C. Now, it's actually a chemical code. So those are all chemicals, adenine, guanine, thymine, cytosine. There will not be a quiz. Um, And so, but with these four chemical letters, you can write the instructions for every living thing on earth. And here's how it works. So you all are a, a little section of a strand of DNA. Now when DNA pulls in half, all it wants to do is rebond with its equal and opposite. So you see your thymine here, but you see that little A? That means you're searching for A. And you're searching for A, but you're searching for G. U. G. So they, all DNA wants to do, so all these chemicals in the nucleus are going to float past, but if the equal and opposite floats past, they bond because they're chemically designed for each other. So you, there's some folks out here, and you have a little N on, you're actually RNA. You're RNA, one of the few molecules allowed in here in the nucleus. So what I want RNA to do, if you'll come up, up here, and I just want you to just kind of float around. RNA, just come float around. But DNA, keep your eye open. And if your opposite floats past you, I want you to reach out and grab them because that's a bond. And then turn to face them toward the audience. They can stand right in front of you and then they have to be stared at. So RNA, float around. And if you see your opposite, grab them and form a bond. All right. And they're right in front of you and they're facing out. Now see how no intelligence guides this. This is just chemicals floating around. All right, and there it is. Okay, they float past and form a bond, and now we have a strand of messenger RNA. Now, the interesting thing is messenger RNA can leave the nucleus. It can go out in the cell and float around, and chemicals will float past, but messenger RNA is also looking to bond with something. So you guys are gonna go out here in a minute and try to find your bonds out there. You can see what you're looking for, but I'll give you a hint. Messenger RNA finds its bonds in little groups of three. So you three have to search for yours together. And you three have to search for yours together. And when you find your pair, you cannot bring them back into the nucleus. This is a secure zone. You have to bring them up here to the foot of the stage. All right? So mRNA, off you go in your strand. It'd be better if you kind of stayed in your strand. But if you float past something that matches, bond and bring them up here to the foot of the stage. DNA, just hang out there for a minute. Oh, they're finding stuff. Okay, scoot down, scoot down. Oh, look, it found something, okay? Um, scoot back here so I, can, uh, so I can grab those from over your heads. So it found a tRNA that matched. But look, it, it carried something with it. It carried an amino acid with it. This is called lysine. Remember lysine from Jurassic Park? That's what kills the dinosaurs if you don't keep feeding them. All right, and, and down here, 
the, the partner found, and they actually are married, so they can form a little bond. Hold hands. <laughs> it brought tryptophan up here. So as soon as they find each other, they let go of the, of the mRNA. You're gone. mRNA, you can actually have a seat. We don't, we don't need you anymore. Because now we have two amino acids hooked together. And what do you call two amino acids hooked together? Someone knows. You actually knew, didn't you? You know, you didn't? Who knew? A good, <laughs> a protein, thank you, thank you, a protein. Okay, we have lysine and tryptophan, that's a protein. What does lysine plus tryptophan do in the body? Nothing that I know of. I can't think of any useful thing a two amino acid protein does. Okay, so you guys can go sit there because you would need a lot more to be useful. The shortest, the shortest useful protein in the human body is insulin insulin that regulates your blood sugar, and it's 54 amino acids long. That's as small as it gets. To show you how insulin was made, I would have needed 162 DNA volunteers up here and 162 mRNA volunteers bobbing around to get the 54 amino acids in a row to make insulin. The simplest, the longest uh, protein in in the human body that we know of is found in muscle, and it is 33,000 amino acids long. To show you how that protein is made, I would have needed every man, woman, and child in Lee Summit and Greenwood, including the babies, to hold the DNA sign for me going out the sanctuary, down the road, and halfway to Independence Center, and 33,000 mRNAs to float all around him in order to show you how a muscle protein was made. All right? So DNA, I need you to wind back up into a chromosome. Take up this half of the stage here. Now, the thing is, is when you start making an amino, thank you, Beth, when you start making an amino acid chain, it's even 54 strands long, but certainly 33,000 strands long, it is not going to stay in a string anymore. You'd be uh, 20 miles long. So it starts folding on itself like a bad slinky that got stretched out and snapped. So, you know, you add them one at a time, but they start, it starts folding up on itself like this as you start to add those amino acids. But because you're adding them one at a time, it folds very precisely. This one adds, this one adds, and it flips. And then this one adds, and it flips the other way. And this one, this one, this one. And then, so you get a very exact shape every time. So you get this protein, let's say this is insulin, shaped like this. Now that just looks like a slightly F-shaped glob to you, but let me tell you, somewhere in your, in your body, There is a molecule shaped like this that bonds right to that and regulates your blood sugar. If you take 33,000 of these, you're going to get some crazy folding. You might get something that looks like this. And when you apply a little electric current to it, it slides past the protein next to it. Well, big deal, except that when a little electrical impulse comes from your brain and hits it, all those slide past each other. And you have a muscle that's moving. You could have one that's maybe 6,000 or so strands long. I'm making this part up. But it's got this very precise shape. And maybe this is the protein in that moss that said, don't make the cell wall any thicker. Otherwise, this plant will suffocate. Okay, it controlled how thick the cell wall got. Yes, I think that was good grammar. All right. Do you see how amazing it is that this kind of a process of chemicals bumping into each other produces anything useful at all? 
Now, imagine if I mutate one of these bases. If I just, oops, make a little mistake, switch to. Now I have different RNA, a different DNA. I'm going to bring in different RNA. They're going to float out there and might bring back different amino acids. So an amino acid that joins the chain and was supposed to fold this way, all of a sudden joins the chain and folds this way. And that could change the entire shape of this so that it doesn't work quite right or more often than not, doesn't work at all. Just because we shaped a little thing. So earlier in this message, when I said... Um, you know, a mutation occurred in the cell walls of the moss that let the moss get thicker. That was so easy to say. But what I was actually saying is an A got switched for a C or a G or a T somewhere. And it produced a different shaped protein that actually worked still. It actually made the cell wall thicker. How fortunate that was. Do you see what a fortunate functional accident that was just by switching one chemical base that actually helped the plant sur survive the dryness of the earth. Let's thank our DNA volunteers for showing us this amazing process. Thank you. If you guys wouldn't mind to take that with you when you go, that, that marker board. Thank you guys so much. Now, when folks see this, the next question most folks ask is, okay, well then what about eyeballs? How does a process like that create something as complex and amazing as an eyeball from random mutations, just switching an A for a G or a C here and there through the years. Now, I actually don't want to waste our time this morning talking about eyeballs because you can go on the internet now and you will find videos of scientists uh, telling you these long and wonderful stories about a worm. And the worm had a few cells on its head that could detect light and dark. And with just a few mutations of structure, it got something kind of like an eyeball and then a little more like one. All the way, little changes at a time until you have something as amazing as the eyes of an eagle or a mantis shrimp or a goat. Now, I'm fine with all of those stories. I really, really am. I can see how through billions of years to work with, you could get from a basic light-dark sensing cell on a worm's head to the eye of an eagle or a goat or a mantis shrimp. That's right, you do not have the best eyes in the world. The best eyes in the world belong to goats and shrimp. But who's eating who, huh? <laughs> All right, so, but, but I, I don't want to talk about how we got eyeballs. I want to talk about how we got those cells on that worm that could detect light and dark in the first place. Because look inside what's going on in uh, that type of a cell. This is what's going on. Here's light. And it hits this protein, this mutant protein. Now, they have a nice arrow drawn here. Isn't that cute? This protein turns into that one. In between here, there's many steps of one chemical converting to another, transducing, and all, anyways. Okay, lots is happening right here. In order to change into this protein, to release this energy, to open this gate, to let these sodium ions come flooding in like a chemical battery, exactly how your car battery works, to produce a little electrical impulse that leaves the cell, and we hope goes tell some part of this worm, hey, Light just hit you right there. Now, we said a worm had a mutation so that it could detect light and dark. We switched an A for a T or a G somewhere, and it was able to make that protein. So what? 
that still makes a blind worm because it doesn't have the three substances in between. Let's say by some marvelous chance, we had three different mutations all in the same worm. And it happened to produce three useful proteins so that you could get all the way to here, release the energy, and open the gate. That electrical impulse has to travel to somewhere. We just hope it's connected to somewhere that causes the worm to do something. Because when that electrical impulse arrives, an equally complicated chemical reaction happens that tells that worm either to crawl toward the light or away from the light. And we hope that that chemical reaction is doing the right thing because one of those choices is life and one of those choices is death. So you can't, even if we had the mutations, by some outside chance that all of this worked right, unless all of this works right, this worm doesn't survive any more than any other worm, doesn't have any more babies than any other worm, and this population of worms will not evolve. Even if we have all of this by some chance in the first worm, now that's a lot of mutations that were very fortunately functional. If it's not all connected to an equally complex reaction somewhere else, the worm says, oh, light hit me. Uh. Another complex reaction has to tell it somewhere else what to do about it. It's the biochemistry of evolution without God that always breaks down for me. Too many mathematical miracles required. Because what I didn't tell you is when I switched those DNA bases, there's actually a protein that's about to come along and make sure that can't happen, that they will be switched back. So only the mutations that the protein editor skipped failed to detect. Also, what I didn't tell you is another DNA strand sitting right beside that one that will override this one if it's got mistakes on it, unless this produces what we call a dominant mutation. So not only do we have to just switch a base and produce something useful, the editor also has to miss it, and the other chromosome has to have something too weak to override it. The whole system's built not to let things like that happen. Too many mathematical miracles required for me to believe that evolution produced all the living things we see and all the wonderful adaptations we see. Uh, without a, by, with just an A for a G or a C or a T here and there through the years. So even though I do believe in evolutionary forces, I do, you don't have to. Even though I do believe in them, I find that without God, it is unlikely for evolution to make millions of unique organisms, each a collection of amazing adaptations all by themselves. So when I'm driving down Colburn Road and I'm doubting God and I'm looking at the grass out the window, I'm not really thinking of blades of grass. I'm thinking of this. This is how I was trained to see grass. This is a microscopic cross-section of what grass looks like on the inside. And I know that every turn and every shape in there has a precise function. And I know that inside those cells, beyond what any microscope can see, is a cascade of complicated chemical reactions. And if you take one catalyst out of those reactions, if you remove just one enzyme from those reactions, you cannot have living grass anymore. And as I'm driving down Colburn Road, doubting the existence of God, I also start thinking not just of grass, but also of animals. Like this animal. 
Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I was trained as a herpetologist. That's actually me holding Graham's crayfish snake. This snake only eats crawdads. In fact, this snake only eats crawdads that have just shed their exoskeleton and are waiting for their new one to dry, harden. They don't dry, they harden because they're underwater. Okay. How, How on earth does this snake living in a muddy creek find a crayfish who has just shed its exoskeleton and is hiding under a rock waiting for it to harden? Because this snake can smell crayfish molting hormone. Have you ever smelled crayfish molting hormone? No, you have not. Because you do not have the protein receptors to detect that smell. That is just one of a million smells passing through your nose right now or when you're down at the creek that you do not detect because there's, it does not bond. There's millions of things happening in the room right now. Some of them you can smell and some of them you cannot. Most of them you cannot. So we're saying that somewhere a snake had a mutation that caused the protein receptors in its organ for smell to mutate so that when crayfish molting hormone came by, it could bond. How fortunate that was for this guy. Or actually, girl, this snake looks very pregnant to me, but I I didn't ask her because you know how awkward that can be. (laughs) So... How fortunate the mutation occurred so crayfish molting hormone could bond. But it's meaningless unless there's also inside that cell then a reaction so that molting hormone causes it to turn into this protein, turn to this protein, release a gate, send an electrical impulse off to the crayfish's brain. You had to have all those chemical steps in the first crayfish. Otherwise, just that little mutation to bond wouldn't have produced anything useful. And when that electrical impulse goes off to the crayfish's brain, somehow a reaction of chemicals happened there that told it whether to run from that smell, ignore that smell, or go find that and eat that while it's still soft and squishy because no one likes to eat crawdads with the shells still on them. How fortunate all that was to have all those pieces in place. By a random mutation of switching an A for a G, and the editor not catching it, and the other chromosome not overriding it. Until you finally get this snake that doesn't eat anything except freshly molted crayfish. And finally, as I'm driving down Colburn Road with my doubts of of God, it's at about Paradise Park that I say, oh yeah, and the bucket orchid. The bucket orchid is a flower in South America. You want to see something complicated? Watch this. The orchid with the most complex flower, the most bizarre and outrageous strategy is Corianthes, the bucket orchid. It clings to branches with its roots embedded in a nest of ants which guard it and supply it with nutrients. But the ants do not pollinate it. This is done exclusively by a species of beautiful, iridescent orchid bee, the plant's one and only pollinator. In the early morning, the orchid opens. Almost immediately, it begins to drip a clear fluid from two glands into the bucket part of the flower. At the same time, the orchid gives off a scent highly attractive to its pollinators, its little male bees. 
But the bees come because their chance of reproducing depends on what the orchid is offering. It is a waxy substance. They scrape off with specially modified front legs to make a perfume, a sort of aphrodisiac, essential to attract and stimulate female bees. No wonder males fly in from up to five miles away. In the ensuing dogfight, the inevitable accident occurs. Though it's no accident as far as the orchid is concerned, the purpose of the fluid now becomes clear. Unlike the water lily, the orchid's intention is not to kill its victim. Oddly enough, it must now start to help him to escape. The bee is on the point of drowning when it discovers a small escape tunnel with a rather conveniently placed step. Just when it seems nothing can prevent escape, the top and bottom of the tunnel close in, holding the bee in a vice-like grip. Struggle and strain as he might, he is held firm while the orchid glues two little yellow pollen sacs on his back. It takes about ten minutes for the glue to set and only then does the orchid release him. The bee is now fully fledged to go between but he must wait to dry to complete his escape. But the orchid's sexual plan is far from complete. Bees which bear no pollen merely pass through the system. It must wait for one carrying pollen sacs from another orchid before it can be fertilized. But what a difference when this bee tries to make its escape. The flower has a device which grabs the pollen sac from his back. Yeah, give God a hand for that one. How many mutations did it take for that to happen? And I'm not even talking about the, the liquid that smells like a girl bee looking for a date or the, the trap pool or the glue or the, the, the little step. I'm talking about the biochemistry inside the cells that caused the jaw to shut on the bee but then only hold him there, not till tomorrow when he's dead, and not for one second, but for 10 minutes until the glue on the pollen dries and then release. How many back and forth chemical processes and mutations did it take to cause that to happen? Because if you're missing any part of the closing or the opening or the timing, it would not work and the plant would never evolve into this. 
all by swapping an A for a T or a G for a C here and there through the years. And then as I turn into the parking lot, I remember that there are 8.7 million species on earth, each one a collection of adaptations. Max, stand up. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Huge brain, right? He can speak languages. He can do karate. He can be an accountant, all right? He's got color vision, very rare for mammals. Something's going wrong with the glasses there, but somebody was able to invent that. He's got uh, five kinds of teeth, and he had an earlier set that was about to wear out, so he lost them and replaced them with five different kinds of new ones. He's warm-blooded. He can go in and out of different temperature environments and stay roughly the same temperature. His hips are adapted to walk upright and to kick people and to break boards. So he's an amazing collection of adaptations. What a specimen. Good find. All right. So, and there are 8.7 million bacteria, protists, plants, other species that have just as many, sometimes more, interesting adaptations than he has. Now, I can stretch my imagination. I have one. And I can stretch my imagination to believe that there could be several organisms that all had these DNA switches, and actually lots of them, all in one organism. And it produced a chain of useful mutations that brought us something completely new. I can believe that happened even without God. Useful gills. Useful eye-like spots, feathers. And since we have two billion years to work with, I'll even stretch my imagination and give you the first million organisms. I'm being very generous, I think. The first million organisms for free without God. Just by switching an A for a T or G or a C. But believing that unguided mutations produced that last 7.7 million bacteria, protist, plants, fungi, invertebrate, invertebrate animals. Each one, an co- amazing collection of unique adaptations and features. And don't forget the amazing chemical processes happening in every cell of their body. To believe that all happened by chance, you are, are stretching my imagination farther than I am able to go with you. And that's about where I remember my first day in evolution class, biology 310. The professor stepped up to the podium and began the class this way, and I'll never forget it. He said, it takes as much faith to believe that evolution produced 8 million species as it does to believe they were created by God in six literal creation days. Well, the class went crazy, secular university, right? Some snickered, some laughed, some groaned. One guy sitting next to me said, come on. And the professor said it again. He said, now I'm serious. It takes as much faith to believe these evolutionary processes occurred again and again and produced so many marvelous plants and creatures and microorganisms as it does to believe they were created by God in six literal creation days. It takes the same imagination, he said. And the more I learn about these processes... Five hours a week for the rest of the semester, the more I saw he was right. Now, I personally believe that the, evolution, uh, the evidence that evolution has occurred is everywhere. I believe that. You don't have to. But the likelihood that it happened all by itself 
seems extraordinarily low to me, so low as to be sitting right there next to impossible. You see, it was easier for me to doubt God when I knew less science. It was easier for me to doubt God when I knew less science, when I could just say, oh, a mutation occurred and made the, the cell wall sticker. That's how they got to be grass. Once I actually learned what a mutation was, switching an A for a G, and that the editor missed it, and the other chromosome didn't override it, and it made a useful protein, once I knew all that, it got a lot harder to believe it happened by itself. And that's why the, know, the more I know about science and the more science I learn, the harder it gets for me to sustain a doubt in God much longer than a 10-minute car ride to work. There's no science proving you're stupid if you believe in God. There's also good science, and there's good scientists out there laboring to study and explain all the functions of this world, and we do not need to be afraid of them or afraid of their discoveries. Are there scientists out there who work dishonestly, do it for the money, do it for a political agenda? Absolutely. A lot of preachers like that too do their work dishonestly for a political agenda or for the money. The presence of crooked preachers does not mean all of faith and its functions can't be trusted. Just like the presence of crooked scientists doesn't mean that the work of science and all of its functions cannot be trusted. Because the more true knowledge we gain for those who truly seek knowledge with science, the closer to ultimate truth it brings us. And if God is ultimate truth, then the two eventually have to come together. And the scriptures already predicted this when a thousand, no, no, two thousand years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 1, verse 20, he said, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And that is how science drives me back to God every time. Thank you for listening to that. I hope it wasn't too much. Let us stand together and let us worship this God. This God who guides all of creation. Not just the form and shape and function of living things, but also the form and shape of our soul and our lives. Who's intimately in everything. Let us worship him together. God, we stand in awe of you. Amen. So I've invited my friend Mike Eklund to join me here for a moment. Um, Mike Eklund uh, attended Lakeland for about six years, some years ago. He's been called to other ministry in the community. Um, he was just leading people to the Lord earlier this year with some amazing, amazing stories. So I'm so glad. I asked Mike to come because there is a continuum of thought when it comes to this evolution creation stuff, right? So I think we have a, a slide 
that'll say, so materialistic evolution, that's where you believe it all happens by chemical processes by itself, no God. Um, then there's theistic evolution, where you believe evolution occurs, but there must be an intelligence guiding it to make it useful. That's what you heard me saying I was. Microevolution is where you believe things can adapt and change their environment, but nothing so radical as a fish giving rise to something like a frog or salamander would probably be better. Um, and then special creation is everything you see on the earth um, and everything you don't see anymore. Dinosaurs is all spoken into existence, and we're there, and it, it's a little complicated after that. But so my Mike, we've taught classes together on this uh, here in the church. Where do you fall? First, I want to thank Lakeland. Um, my wife, Linda, and I and my youngest son, Kyle, were here for six years and had just a wonderful time and great, great memories. And, and believe me, we did not leave for any negative reasons. We just sensed the Lord leading us to a new ministry assignment, and so that's why we went. But it's great to be back here. And, and I want to thank my friend Garrett for inviting me. And i got to say something about Garrett. I hope you guys know how blessed you are to have him as one of your pastors. He, he is a man of integrity, and, and I see the love of Jesus in his heart, and he loves this church. So just be thankful for that because that's not always common, and he's, he's a true friend. And so, Garrett, thank you for inviting me. I, where Absolutely. I stand is I believe that definitely a microevolution happened. That's pretty clear. And I am a special creation person. I just don't believe that microevolution led to macro, which produced, from, in other words, from amoeba to man. Right. And God, you're also a young earth creationist. So I am earth a young is earth. only... Oh, 10,000 years old, maybe. Okay. And, uh, you know, I could give you um, scientific evidence. I've, I've been involved with a group that does studies that are from Christian scientists that would teach you that. And I could give you biblical evidence. But the only thing I would say this morning is the thing that really convinced me the question that the, my friends who are God plus evolution is the character of God. That's really what bothers me. If you read scripture, Jesus said, whatever you have done to the least of these, you've done to me. It talks about what have you done for the orphan and the widow? That's true religion. Help the poor, help the needy, help the underprivileged. That's the message of the Bible. And yet if you look at evolution, there are some good things that Garrett has shared that happened, but it's also... Might makes right. Big guy eat the little guy. Survival of the fittest. And I don't see a lot of love in that process. So the reason why I reject it is because I believe a God of love would not have used that process. So in a nutshell, that's what I've come down on. Mm-hmm. But what I also want to mention is... That's really good. That's yeah. really good for all of us to, to think about. And, you know, I think Garrett would agree. You need to think about this yourselves. Don't believe me or Garrett. Look into this. This is, this is a tough subject, but I, w- I want to say this very clearly. This is not a salvation issue. There's going to be plenty of believers in, all through that continuum, and so we need to give grace to the body of Christ. I love my brother. We disagree on this, but I love my brother, and we're together majoring on the things that really, really matter, and that's the death burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So that's really the message that we wanted to have this morning. And I think why you invited me, right? Yes, yes. Because, you know, know, there may be folks here who just found out like, oh, goodness, one of of my pastors, I should say that too. One of my pastors thinks the earth's two billion years old. Can I go to a church like that? That seems a little weird. So, you know, I wanted to say, 
Yeah. Mike and I stand together. Yeah. We disagree. We both serve Christ together in this church at one time, in the community still. So, you know, we're all yes. welcome on this issue because it's not a salvation issue. You absolutely say. can because we need to major on the things that really, really matter. And, you know, we're all going to disagree on some things. There's nobody that's got a corner on truth. And so it frustrates me when I have people tell me when I'm out doing ministry, I would never become a Christian. You guys can't get along. All you do is fight amongst each other. And that, unfortunately, is true in some cases. We need to, as a body of Christ, unify and come together. And the things that we do disagree on, be gracious about it, for goodness sakes. You know, neither one of us believes that we have the corner on truth. So we'll continue to seek God and see where that leads. Amen. So, Thank you, Mike. As a, just a reminder of our unity as believers, we're going to say together the Apostles' Creed, one of the great old creeds of history. And so if you would repeat with me this, I would appreciate it. It starts like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. He's asked me to pray and close, so if you'd bow your heads and your hearts. Father, we love you. We come before you as your people, and uh, we want to acknowledge you as the creator. However our opinion goes to how you did that, we know you did that. Whether it took millions of years or six days, we know that you're the creator and that you love us. Lord, so we want to give you praise for who you are and for sending your son to die for us, Lord. I pray for the body of Christ, both here at Lakeland and all over this country, that we would show Jesus to people and we would show love to each other so people could see that, Lord. We need to come together and unify as a body of Christ so you can use us to build your kingdom. Thank you for Garrett and for Marta and for Dan and for all the leadership here and how you are using them to impact their, their community. And I pray for blessings upon them and just thank you for this body. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.